Okay, so I would like our author of the week here to introduce herself. Hello, my name is Linda Sittig. I live in Percival, Virginia, and I am the writer of three historical novels plus one nonfiction. And I write mainly about strong women in history that were overlooked and should have become famous, but were not. I have a blog that I have been writing for nine years. Uh, every month I profile a woman you've never heard of and tell her story of the life that she led and how her actions led um, this to be a better world, let's say, but did not get any accolades. And so I pay tribute to her uh, for the month. And I, the women come from all over the globe, from different races, from different ethnic backgrounds, from different time periods, but they all share the same characteristics of strong women who persevered for justice to triumph over injustice. I have been following Linda's blog and it is called Strong Women in History or just Strong Women? Strongwomeninhistory.com. Yes. So I think I've been following your blog since the beginning. I think you have. Yes. And it, it's really, really interesting. So anyone who hasn't heard of it, give it a look because she has some fascinating information on there. Thank you. Dixie, would you like me to share one of my favorite blogs? Okay. All right. So it's Isabel Romay. She's from France. She lives during the 15th century. She's unusual for her time because she's literate. She can both read and write. She's married to a farmer. They have four children. Um, they are uh, peasants and they work the farm and they have a very predictable life with the changing of the seasons. But then her oldest uh, child, a girl, is murdered. And Isabel, um, of course, and her husband are heartbroken. But Isabel thinks that somehow the Catholic Church is involved. So she goes to her local priest who tells her, of course, there's no, there's no connection. She then writes, decides to write to the Monsignor, who would be much, you know, his superior. And the Monsignor tells her there's no connection. And uh, the years start going by and Isabel is never convinced. She is convinced that somehow the church was involved. Eventually, her children all grow up and get married. Her husband dies. She is given a very small widow's pension and she leaves the farm and moves into town. And she decides that it's been many years since her daughter's death, but that she is going to start writing to the Pope. Since the local priest wouldn't help, the Monsignor wouldn't help, she starts writing to the Vatican. And of course, she doesn't get any response. So many years pass, and Isabel is now 70 years old. She's never given up the belief that her, that her daughter was murdered with a connection somehow to the church. And she hears that the Holy See, S-E-E, -E, is coming to Paris, France, the C is the judicial arm of the Catholic Church that hears different cases that involve the church. And so Isabel convinces another local farmer to drive her in a donkey cart, literally, to Paris. And they get there, and she gets off, and she walks to Notre Dame Cathedral, where the hundreds of people are waiting online so that they can have their case heard by the Holy See. 
And it takes a couple of days before it's Isabel's turn. And she gets up, she walks up to the uh, front of the church and she tells the story about how she uh, is a devout Catholic. She has raised all her children to be good Catholics. Her oldest daughter, however, was murdered about 35 years ago and that she always believed somehow there was a connection to the church. She pled her case to the local priest, to the Monsignor. She's even written to the Pope, but nobody has ever answered her letters. And in a real twist of fate, the sea, the, the men who are on, on, on the judges on the sea, agree to hand carry her letter to the Pope and promise her that somebody will get back to her. And so finally, Isabel decides that there might be justice for her daughter after all. Because like government, the Catholic Church, all churches move slowly. Uh, Isabel dies within the next year and never uh, lives long enough to find out that there was an investigation into the church, into the, her daughter's death, and that the Catholic Church does take some responsibility. Now, you've never heard of Isabel Romay. She was, uh, you know, a very strong woman. She championed her daughter's cause, but you've never heard of her. But you have heard of her daughter. Her daughter was Joan of Arc. Yes. So here is a strong woman who definitely believes that justice needs to be served. As we all know with Joan of Arc, it's not the church that murdered her, but with all of the political connections between the church and what was going on in France in those years, it, um, Joan of Arc was put to death, supposedly in her uh, heresy charges, where it was really all political. But Joan of Arc becomes, you know, obviously a saint in the Catholic Church, a very famous person in history. But none of that would have occurred if she had not had a strong mother, Isabel Romay, to make sure that she spent the rest of her life trying to seek justice. So she's my favorite. I've profiled 108 women, and Isabel still remains for me one of my top favorites. And because of women like Isabel, I keep writing the blog each month, paying tribute to women that most people will never recognize their names, but their stories deserve to be told. That is amazing. Thank you. She's one of my favorites, truly. Yes. So obviously the life she lived would have still been the life she lived, Joan of Arc. Correct. But she would never have become famous. She just Correct. would have died in obscurity. Probably. Yeah. Wow. So it's because of Isabel that I keep, uh, because of women like Isabel Romay that I keep writing my blogs. But it was because of another woman that nobody's heard of, Ellen Canavan, that the blog even got it started. Ellen Canavan is the protagonist in my very first book. I have three books called Threads of Courage series. The very first book is Cut from Strong Cloth. And I learned Ellen's story by happenstance. And it was so compelling to me that I wanted to research who she was and find out more about her. And eventually I had so much information that I wrote her story into a book. So this is how that started. So I decided this was back in, oh, this has been 20 years ago. I decided to visit my great grandfather's grave in Philadelphia and put some flowers down. So I write ahead to the Philadelphia cemetery, very small Catholic cemetery. And they write back and say, it's not a real good part of Philadelphia anymore. Don't come up here alone as a woman, even during the daytime. So my husband agrees to go with me. We drive up to Philly. 
we get to the cemetery. Uh, I've called ahead. The man, the caretaker meets us and he says, uh, come on, I'll show you where your great grandfather's buried. So we make our way through the cemetery and all of a sudden we come upon a mausoleum. Now it's a small mausoleum, but it's still a mausoleum. And the name Nolan is over the top of it, over the lintel. And the caretaker says, there, that's your great grandfather, James Nolan, and that's his mausoleum. And so I stand there completely surprised and I'm thinking to myself, okay, so my mother's stories that James Nolan, her grandfather, was a very wealthy Irishman in Philadelphia during the Civil War. And then the caretaker said, um, the mausoleum is sealed. You can't go in. But I ran off a paper of everybody buried inside. Okay, thank you. So he hands me the paper. And I see on the top row the crypt that says James Nolan. Next to him on his left is Sarah Jane Brady Nolan, my great-grandmother. And on his right side is someone called Mrs. James Nolan. And then as you go down through the uh, crypts in the mausoleum, I start recognizing other ancestors' names. And at the bottom, there are three very small crypts that just say Nolan children. So I said to the caretaker, I know most of these names, but who is this Mrs. James Nolan? And the caretaker says, I don't know, but she had to be family to get into the mausoleum. Okay, was that his mother or a cousin or... So I said to the caretaker, well, how can I find out who she is? And he says, you'll have to call the archdiocese. So start making from the hotel. Jim and I are staying in Philadelphia. So from the hotel, I start calling the archdiocese of Philadelphia. And I get one person after another, after another, who just keeps saying, I don't know, try this. And so finally, I get the woman who's in charge of the database of the cemeteries. And she said, you know, all we have is her name. Mrs. James Nolan. We don't know anything else about her, but there's a woman out in Wynwood, Pennsylvania, who will research it for you. You have to pay. And I said, all right, give me her name. So I get the name and address, and I write to the woman. Her name is Christine Friend. And I say, my great-grandfather, James Nolan, was a parishioner of St. Michael's Church, Kensington, Philadelphia. There's this woman buried next to him that I don't know, Mrs. James Nolan. Can you find out? And about six weeks go by and I get a letter and it says, Dear Linda, that woman, Mrs. James Nolan, was his first wife and her name was Ellen Canavan. And here's their marriage certificate. Here's the baptism certificate of their three children. So I sit there and I'm reading the letter and I call my father in, in Florida and I say, Dad, did you know James Nolan had two wives? He goes, no, 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 just one, Sarah Jane Brady. I said, Dad, I'm holding a marriage certificate. There was somebody before Sarah Jane, and that woman's name was Ellen Canavan. So I start thinking about it, and I say to my husband, sort of in jest, but not really, how unfair to be buried with only your husband's name for ID. Don't you dare do that to me if I go first. <laughs> <laughs> and then I start thinking, so what was Ellen like, and why did she die young, and why did he bury her with his name? And and I start searching and I spend the next almost 10 years searching everything I can find out about Ellen Canavan. And I find out that she died at 29 of tuberculosis. I find out that before she married my great grandfather, she was a young Irish immigrant who had the idea of making a superior cloth for soldiers uniforms. But because she was female, Irish Catholic, uneducated, not wealthy, she couldn't get a sponsor to sponsor her business in Philadelphia. 
until she met my great grandfather and he decided he would sponsor her and together they went into business together. They eventually fell in love. They did manufacture a, a very strong cloth that was part Georgia cotton and part Pennsylvania wool. And it made such superior cloth for soldiers uniforms that when the civil war broke out, they secured the best government contract and they became very wealthy throughout the entire civil war their cloth was in very high demand. And then unfortunately, Ellen, um, she does have three children and two of them die and, when, and one survives. The other third in the crypt is a cousin. And then James Nolan waits the year and then remarries and I descended from the second wife. But I felt that Ellen's story was so important and so interesting that she deserved to have her story known. And so I set about writing a book and it took two years it finally was finished and it was called Cut from Strong Cloth. I went through a freelance editor and then I started trying to get it published. And oh my goodness, was it difficult. I decided that I would set a goal for 75 rejections. And after I got rejected 75 times, I would publish it myself. So almost a year goes by. I've had 70 rejections. And a friend says, you should try a small press. Forget the big guys on Madison Avenue in New York City. Try a small press. And so I started querying, sending out queries and pitches to a few small presses. And the second one I wrote to said, yes, we'd like to see. It sounds compelling. I sent them the manuscript. Within a week, I heard back. And they said, we love Ellen and her spirit and her triumph. And we would be proud to publish her story. And that was Freedom Forge Press, who is still my publisher today. I've now published four books through them, but they were the ones who believed in Ellen right from the beginning. And once I had my book written, I'm, then I thought, there must be other women like Ellen out there. And so that's how the blog got started. I wrote about Ellen as one of my early blog entries, and then I have just keep researching and researching and researching every month. But my blog is definitely tied to my three historical fictions. That's a really gripping tale. Oh, I mean, I have read the book, so I know the story of Ellen. And yeah, it seems unfair. Very. The entire identity was just erased, subsumed. Right. And apparently back in like the 1870s, that was actually fairly normal to be buried with the husband's name and not your own name. It was considered the proper etiquette. Well, as I remember, she couldn't even open a bank account. No, she couldn't. She couldn't. There were a lot. Yeah, we have, we have come a long way. Not, not completely, but we have come <laughs> a long way since then. Yes, yeah. we have. Um, but your latest book is not fiction. It is not. It is nonfiction. And the way that happened, I was at a book signing for my second book, Last Curtain Call, about the coal mining strikes of 1894 in Western Maryland. And a man came up out of the audience and said, I have a story that is so good, and you'd be the perfect person to write the book. And I said, oh, all right, thank you. And he said, it's about a B-52 bomber that crashed in 1964 with a crew of five airmen and two nuclear bombs. And I smiled and I said, well, okay, thank you, but I don't write military. I don't write about men. I write about strong women. And he said, well, I'm sure they had wives. <laughs> so we decided to trade emails and I was working on another book at the time. So I kind of just lost touch of them, so to speak. 
But every three months, he would email me, how's that last book coming? I want you to write the B-52 story. So finally, last July, I got an email from him that said, um, I have two women driving from Louisiana up to Western Maryland to where the crash happened. Their uncle was one of the five airmen. Uh, would you like to meet them? And I thought, well, this be nothing to lose. I'll meet the two women. So in the middle of COVID, wearing masks, sitting in the lobby of a hotel in, uh, outside of Cumberland, Maryland, I met the two women. Um, and they talked with me for three hours. And by the time they finished, I realized that the story was so compelling. It wasn't just the bombs. It wasn't just the crash. It was how it affected the five families that were involved. It affected 1,000 volunteers who came to try and find out where the men had landed. And I can go into that in a moment without spoiling it. Um, but it was such a human interest story that I decided, OK, I. I will, I will tackle nonfiction. And what happened actually was I loved it. I, I loved it. In some ways, it's easier because you can only tell what's true. With fiction, you can make things up. You can massage. You know, you have to have your three-act play. But in nonfiction, you're telling the story pretty much as it happened chronologically. So the basic story was that this five-man crew in January 1964 was called from Albany, Georgia, to fly up to Chicopee, Massachusetts, and pick up a B-52 bomber that needed repair and fly it back to Albany, Georgia, to the Air Force Base there. So the men were off duty, but they all were called back in. Sunday afternoons, 55 degrees in Georgia, they put on their flight suits, they kiss their wives, they hug their kids, and they take a military uh, transport up to Massachusetts. They get briefed, they sleep a little bit, have something to eat. And at 1230 at night, they fly, they take off from Massachusetts to fly back to Georgia. Now, this is 1964. So the weather forecasting was not as sophisticated as it was today. They knew there was a storm, but they were trying to beat it on the way back to Georgia. What happened instead was they slammed right into the center of the storm, which wasn't just a storm, it was a blizzard. It has since, been called the, has since been called the blizzard of a century. So they hit the blizzard, they're going 500 miles an hour in the B-52 bomber. The blizzard has wind shears of 167 miles an hour. And when they collide, the wind shears shear off the back stabilizer, the tail of the airplane, and take the back two wings with it. Now, the B-52 bomber is the largest aircraft in military history. If you want to get an idea of the size, if you put a B-52 bomber on a football field, its nose would touch the goalpost and its back would touch the 50-yard line, and its wings would go from sideline to sideline. It is a huge plane. And this one is carrying two nuclear bombs. So when the tail is, is wrenched off, the plane begins to spiral. It then flips upside down into what is called negative G. And the pilot realizes that even though they're 30,000 feet up, there's no way they're going to survive. And he pushes the um, eject button or pushes the button on the intercom for everybody to eject. And all five men have to eject out of the airplane. Now, Remember that they're in flight suits from Georgia, where it was 55 degrees. They eject out of the plane into the blizzard, which is sub-zero weather, 30,000 feet high. 
Their parachutes won't even deploy until they're 14,000 feet off the ground. They're 30,000 feet. So they're basically in free fall for everything in between. When they finally do land, they land in the middle of the Savage River State Forest, 52,000 acres of mountains in Western Maryland. The tourist maps all call it the Maryland Alps. Sounds very romantic. The aviation people call it the graveyard of the Alleghenies because of the huge number of aircraft uh, that have gone down in the mountains. And when the men do land in this 52,000 acre uh, area, they are at least two miles from each other. So they're not near anybody. They're not near any human. The blizzard is still raging and goes on for another two days. The plane goes on without them, eventually hits Elbow Mountain and explodes. The military is, of course, alerted, and the people, and it's a very rural area in Garrett, Garrett County, Maryland. The people start calling each other, saying there's a B-52 down, and we've got to help these men. And eventually, there is a volunteer force of 1,000 people who come together and search for five days to try and locate all five of the men. And that's where I'm going to stop. Because if you wanted to read the book, you have to go on Amazon and get it called B-52. 52 down the night the bombs fell from the sky. So it was very different than writing fiction, but I, I, I really enjoyed it. It, had, it was more challenging in some respects because I knew how to write a good story, but I have no technical background in aircraft or aviation. So I read books, I read magazine articles, I read everything I could. I finally called the Air Force and asked to speak to someone that could help me understand um, I called author, aviation authors and said, okay, if I'm in a B-52, how, how do you go to the bathroom? I mean, I, there were all sorts of questions that I had to know. And then there was the technical aspect. The bombs weighed nine megatons each. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that each bomb was 600 times more powerful than the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Um, there was just so much technical knowledge I had to learn. And then I had to be able to write it in a way that it would be interesting for the reader and not, you know, not too technical. So it really stretched my um, skills as a writer, but I found that I really, really enjoyed it. And I, I, I don't have another well, one in my mind, but I'd like to do one again. Can I ask you, you said the plane exploded on impact. It did. Wasn't anybody worried that that would set off one of these bombs? Yes, very much so. That's why within a few hours, the, uh, the Marines, the Air Force, the United States Army, and the, um, it, it's the uh, Civil Air Patrol were all there in the debris field. It was a farmer's field. The plane gouged out 75 feet gouge, I'm going to call it in the earth, 75 feet long gouge, 25 feet deep, um, debris everywhere. The bombs were there. The bombs by the grace of God, did not go off. One was cracked. Radiation did leak, but it did not explode. Had the bombs exploded because of their tremendous size and everything, the radiation cloud and would have affected us as far away as Washington, D.C. So it was very scary. And of course, the people who live there, the, uh, you know, the Army and the Navy, and I mean, the Air Force is selling everybody, the bombs are okay, don't worry. But there was like 185,000 gallons of jet fuel that sank into the earth with the explosion. So you have the water table now has become affected, I will say. 
So and it yeah. still is to this day? I'm not at liberty to say. Okay. The official report, the, the official report has 22 pages redacted, completely black that you can't read. So I could say there's consensus that that's true, but I can't say that it is true or that it's not true. Okay. That's yeah. a little scary. It is a little scary. And because, uh, you know, I, I read so much. And this is 1964 when we're in the middle of the Cold War with Russia. There were actually other accidents like this. They're called broken arrows. And a broken arrow means an airplane has gone down with, a nu with nuclear bombs on board, but the bombs have not detonated. So there are several locations in the United States where those accidents have happened. Two of the locations, the bombs have never been recovered. One is in uh, right off Tybee Island in Savannah, Georgia. The bombs are somewhere in the middle of the Savannah River. They've never been recovered. Another one is in North Carolina. I think it's near Goldsboro, North Carolina. The impact, they went down 180 feet into the mud and dirt, and they've never been recovered. So it is kind of scary. All of these broken arrows ended once the Cold War ended, once the Soviet Union broke up. And Well, it doesn't mean, it just means there aren't any more of them. Correct. But the Correct. ones that were broken are still broken. They are still broken. And in some cases, people were hurt on the ground when the, you know, when the planes and the bombs fell. Right. But none of the bombs were, none of the bombs were detonated, like what we would think of, like what happened with Hiroshima. And they were not just, there were seven in the United States, but there's one in Greenland, one in France. I mean, one in Spain. They're all around the world where these accidents happened. So very scary. Yeah. But all of it was done in an attempt to protect the United States and our freedom. The theory was that if Russia did send uh, nuclear weapons or missiles to us, the B-52 bombers would be able to retaliate within minutes. So, I, re I remember the SAC bases. And exactly. Constantly in the air. I yeah. remember that. Yeah. And this also, too, the, the one that I wrote about is just seven weeks after Kennedy's been assassinated. So there's a lot of patriotism and sadness going on. And then this happened. And I wrote it so that the women's story was equal to the men. The five-man crew, of course, I, wrote, I told their story explicitly. But I took the time that I told the story about each of the wives who was sitting back in Georgia waiting to hear whether her husband was a survivor or not. Um, because I felt their stories were just as poignant and important as the men were themselves. Because when, when you're in the military, the whole family is involved. It's not just the service person. Um, and I've had the families all contact me and say, thank you for writing the story. We are just so immensely grateful to you for bringing this into a book. Because there have been magazine articles written on it, and a lot of newspaper articles, but nobody had written a book on it. Right. And magazines and newspapers are very ephemeral. They are. They are. And I, the other thing I had to learn was I knew that it would be important to have photographs in a nonfiction book. And so I assembled what I thought were all the most important photographs. But what I realized, what I learned is when my publisher said, well, where did you get credit for, you know, for photo one, two and three? And I said, I pulled them off the Internet. He said, yeah, you can't do that. And he said, you have to have permission from the original source. Well, in 
one case, it was the, it was the United States Air Force and I couldn't get permission. In another case, we never found out who had taken the original, so I couldn't use it. And in the third case, it, was a, it belonged to a historical society and they wanted $75 for each time I used the photo. And I thought, okay, that's going to cut into my budget. So we had to, so we eliminated three of the photos. But if you just use it on your website. No, it would be pay for it to be on the website, pay for it to be in a book, pay for it if it is shown on a publicity poster. So we, we just eliminated it. So that was a learning experience for me because one of the pictures was really, really cool. But, I, you know, it, it was a B-52 in flight and I just couldn't use it because everywhere I, I, I'd say, well, it's on this website and this website, but nobody had, nobody had the original credits. And so my publisher said, we can't do it because all it would take was whoever really took that photo can then sue for copyright infringement. So, yeah, so I learned to scan in photos. That was a new learning experience. So even though my nonfiction book is much shorter than my historical fiction books. It still was a lot of work, but it was a lot of very, um, a, a huge learning curve that I enjoyed doing. I know more about airplanes than you could possibly <laughs> imagine. <laughs> and the next time I get an airplane and fly up to 30,000 feet and the captain says, you can take off your seatbelt. Yeah, I'm gonna look at that sign of 30,000 feet and think, uh-huh. <laughs> wow, that's, that's really fascinating. Thank you. You can tell I enjoy it. I can. And that's why we write, isn't it? It is. It is. Because almost nobody gets rich at this. <laughs> no, no. Not unless you're one of the real lucky ones. Yeah. My very first workshop that I ever took was at Frostburg um, State University in Frostburg, Maryland. I went up in the summer and took a course. And the professor said, um, even if this never gets published, do you still want to make this the best piece of writing you could possibly do? And I didn't even hesitate. I said, absolutely. And he said, that's the spirit. And he said, that's what I want to hear. And actually that piece that I wrote for him did become part of Cut from Strong Cloth. So it did get published. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think you find a use for something, you know, everything you do. At yes, some I point agree. you can look back and either that itself is is useful or what you learned by doing it is useful. I agree. Learning is never wasted. No, it, 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 it isn't. And it's amazing how it changes your perspective of the world. Even when I see an airplane go by in the sky, you know, I look up right away to see how many engines does it have, you know, because it's become a part of my psyche now that I'm very attuned to. Nice. And there are still some B-52s, not flying, but there are still some B-52s left. Um, they're usually at different Air Force bases, none in the Washington, D.C. area. But the problem with the B-52s is their size. They are so huge that they would take up, you know, a hangar almost on their own. So there aren't, there aren't many that are on display. But there aren't any flying? I don't think so. Mm -mm. Okay. But don't quote me on that. All right. All right. I won't. Oh, well, it's, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank and you. I will have links to all of your books in the show notes. Right. And it was just fantastic. Thank you. I well, do you want my, do you want to put my email up as well? And then people could contact me if they had further questions. 
Okay, with your permission, I will do that. All right. I will talk to you later. All right. Thanks, Dixie, so much for asking me to share.